Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're back after a break. We thank you that you may have brought some new folks here, people who have joined us of late. But Father, we know at any day, any time, any place in the scriptures, it's a good day to be seated at your feet and listening and learning. Uh, Father, we've been listening to a man, listening to the scriptures teach us about a man who has, uh, who has been held in high regard for many centuries for good reason. And we want to know all the good things this man did and why and how we can learn from them. We've also understood this man had, had things that were not perfect, as we all do, and that's been instructive too. I thank you, Father, that we can see people in the scriptures in an honest way, in a, in a transparent way. How much easier is it, Father, to aspire to please you when we know that the, that the uh, paragons of our faith, they failed too at times. And Lord, at the same time, we know that all that we do in, in success, in pleasing you, is by your grace. And we know that all that we achieve is by your power. And we ask, Father, that we never forget that so that we can move out in obedience without pride and uh, without selfish motive. We pray for that as well. Let's go into the scriptures, Father, under your tutelage. Show us what you'd have us to know tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are back to uh, David's lesson of humility. This is following the defeat of his son Absalom. And we're going to pick up with the events at that point. Let's start with a map. might help you remember where we are. If you remember, uh, David has been in a conflict with his son, Absalom, over who is going to control the throne of Israel. This whole episode was instigated by Absalom because of his dissatisfaction with the way his father was treating him. And that was the result of years of bad blood between them. So there's a whole backstory here that if you haven't been around, you need to go listen online and catch up. But where we are now at the start of chapter 19 is David has defeated his uh, son's army uh, up at a place called Mahanaim, which is off of the Jabbok River, north uh, of or northern end of the uh, Jordan River Valley near Galilee. And after the battle, as you remember, Absalom dies because Joab, the commander, kills him, even though David had said it shouldn't happen. David then entered a period of mourning for his son. He hears the battle's been won, but he hears his son has died in the process, and David's first reaction is to mourn for this rebellious son. And his mourning was so over the top that it threatened to alienate and dishonor those who had fought for David. So David had moved all the way up here in exile, leaving the land of Israel, crossing the the Jordan, which was very substantial. It made the impression that he had left the land. He had exiled himself. He had brought a minimum group of men with him. He had found some allies from Amnon uh, uh, north. They had come together. They had been able to defeat this army that had come against him. And all those people had put their lives and their fortunes on the line for David. And... Once the battle is over, once David is victorious, all they expected from him was a little thanks and a little honor. And instead, he's responded as if he would have preferred to lose the battle in order to save his son's life. And that response was both selfish and short-sighted. Because had Absalom won the battle, surely Absalom would not have shown David the same mercy that David was willing to show him. So, When you're in a fight to the death, there's no place for such displays of mercy. And it finally caught the attention of David's commander, Joab. Now, when we left off last time, we had just read the passage where Joab goes in at the beginning of chapter 19 and gives David a piece of his mind. I want to repeat that for context, but then we're going to pick up from there. So, by way of transition, here's what Joab shared with the king. Verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today... You have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you'd be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. So Joab tells David, as you remember, this is a quick summary, that his behavior had covered the faces of his people with shame. And what he points out is the obvious. When Absalom rebelled, he set in motion a series of events that inevitably meant someone was going to die. Had David lost, well, then Absalom would have killed David. And, by the way, his whole family, because they're all heirs, they're all potential rivals for the throne. 
All right? And as a result, it was only natural that Absalom and his men would have expected to die if they lose the battle. In fact, we studied last time how Absalom went and built a monument to himself before he died because he didn't have kids. And he said, well, if I die in this battle, at least I'll have something to remember me by. So he was prepared to die. He knew the outcome would lead to that. So his actions made clear someone in David's family was going to die. Either Absalom or David and everyone else. Pick one. There were only two choices on the table. So Joab is pointing this out to David, and he's saying, which one do you prefer? Would you prefer that you and the rest of your family, including Solomon, the heir, should have died and Absalom should be alive? And and he's pointing it out because David's actions are suggesting as much. And that's shame to David's people because what it suggests is David values the traitor Absalom more than he values his loyal men. And he characterized David's actions in that famous phrase, loving those who hate you and hating those who love you. He was favoring a rebellious son who would not have hesitated to kill him, and he was forsaking those who had put their own lives at risk to save him and his family. And verse 6, Joab tells David, this is what you need to go do. You need to go show those princes and those servants that they mean something to you after all. Not in verse 6, sorry, in verse 7. And in this moment, in this, this whole transaction, this whole moment between Joab and David, what you're seeing God do for David's sake is hold a mirror up to David. And we said this last time, if you were here. David gets to see for himself through Joab's feedback what kind of father and king he has become. And it's not a pretty picture at this point. David is self-absorbed. He's indulgent as a father. And now that has started to impact his judgment as king. And it's a basic biblical principle of leadership, by the way. I can point you to 1 Timothy 3, where Paul says this, but the, one, the person we are at home in leading our family is the person we're going to be in church leading God's people. It's inevitable. You know, if you're not a good disciplinarian with your kids, you're probably not going to be someone who can discipline in the church properly, because it's even harder. If you're not someone who encourages or inspires or le- teaches well with kids, you're probably going to have struggle doing that with adults. It just follows naturally. If you're apathetic and absentee from raising your family, you're probably not going to be very engaged in the church. I mean, these things tend to go hand in hand. It's very rare, in my experience, to find a man who is, or a, a wife or woman who is fully engaged, godly and attentive in their family, and completely absent at church, or vice versa. They just don't seem to flow that way. And what you're seeing with David is as his life with his kids goes, so goes his attention to the leadership job that he has in leading the nation. But it's not irrevocable, or or his success is not outside of reach. It it is recoverable. He just needs to get back on track. And that brings us to verse 8. This is David's response to Joab's demands that he do something to rectify the situation with his men and return honor to their victory. Verse 8. So the king arose, sat in the gate. And when they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, well, then all the people came before the king. I'm going to pause there mid-verse for a second because it picks up in a new thought at that point. Now, you hear that and you think, well, that doesn't sound like a very impressive response. We need to understand what it, what it means culturally. David has done exactly what Joab requested here. By that I mean this. Remember, David is, is presently a visitor in a foreign town, Mahanaim, out in the middle of nowhere, you know, up, up in this area outside of Israel. That means he is not by his palace. He doesn't have a court. You know, he doesn't have his normal place to occupy. Normally, in the days following a great military victory, what would have happened was the king would have sat in his throne room in his palace, and he would have held court. And he would have received there all the men who had fought on his behalf in the army after the victory. And he receives them either one at a time or maybe a unit of men at a time, a company of men, however they were organized. And in the course of that audience, he would bestow medals for valor. He would award spoil as reward. In general, he would honor them one at a time, groups at a time, until the whole army had been honored for their support of the battle. That's what kings do to make sure the people who fought for them feel properly recognized. Those receptions were a key part of their celebration. But when David went off and hid himself in that room in Mahanaim and started crying like a baby over his son, he denied his men this opportunity because this wasn't happening. That's what Joab's talking about. So Joab tells David, get out there before your men and do your job. And David complies. Now because he's in Mahanaim, he doesn't have his palace. So where do you go? Well, 
He goes to sit in the city gate, and as many of you may know, the city gate of an ancient city was the place of ruling for that city. So this is the closest thing he has to his palace. That's the point. And in verse 8, after the people are told, hey, David's in the gate, David's in the gate, that's like saying, hey, Santa's at the mall. Come on. So they all decide they're going to run to David at this point. All, notice how it says, all the people came before the king. Who are these people, remember? He's not in Jerusalem. He's not even in Israel. He's out up near Ammon. So these are the, the men here. The people are his army. That's who the people are. So all the army is what it's saying came to David, and what that means is they came to get their reward, they came to get their commendations. So what you're seeing is, if it seems very short and sweet, you know, not a lot of description, that makes a point, doesn't it? There wasn't a lot of drama. David didn't drag his feet. He didn't make excuses. He didn't try to change, he just said, okay. And then he did it. What more repentance can you get than that? The point is, This is another demonstration of David's special ability, unique ability, to show humility and repentance in the face of rebuke or discipline. In this case, the discipline came through a a subordinate, which is even more remarkable. So like us, he's not perfect. He has weaknesses. He has blind spots. But unlike many of us, he's quick to repent, very quick to repent, quick to humble himself, quick to go before the Lord and before others and acknowledge he's wrong and change the course and not look back and not get sort of locked up in the struggle of pride over whether or not we should or could or, or how much we should or who gets to see when we do it. And Just do it. Just do it. Be public about it. Get it done and move on. And be content with the fact that at least you're not wrong anymore. That's true repentance. So having won the battle with Absalom dead, Now David is free to return to the place that he should have been all along in Jerusalem, and we pick up there. Now I'm going to go to the second half of verse 8 where we pick up there. It says now in verse 8, Now Israel had fled, each to his tent. All the people were quarreling throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we appointed over us, has died in battle. Well, now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? This is a narrative of what's happening within the nation as a whole. It's interesting. After David's victory, you see this period of confusion within Israel. It says there, Israel. Whenever you see the word Israel in this context, we're talking now about the tribes of of the nation that rejected David. So it's, it's essentially everyone other than Judah at this point. And... They, after the death of Absalom and after the loss in that that armed conflict, that group of tribes, Israel, they all fled. They went back home. They they had their tail between their legs and they ran for their lives and they all go back to their tent. That's a way of saying they all went back home, wherever they came from. And uh, they had backed Absalom, if you remember, in place of David. Absalom had had the large majority of support in the nation of Israel. David had had very little and remember why they backed Absalom? He's good looking. He had all that hair. He was the favorite son. He was like that, that rock star, you know, son of the famous politician or movie star or royal person or something that did, they haven't done a thing in their life except get born to the right family and everyone loves them. And they just have that, you know, they're famous for being famous, as the saying goes. And that, that kind of fits who Absalom was. There's no other record of him doing anything of any significance except being notable for David's son and having impressive hair. So they rose up against David and they followed him. He's dead, verse 8. Now it says uh, that after he dies, they retreat. They go back to their homes. They don't know who to follow now. And when you rise up in rebellion against a king, your rebellion, if it fails, will ultimately have dire consequences for you. That's typical, Right? So in verse 9, we're told the people start quarreling. So you have to imagine what quarreling looks like in this case. We're talking about people who are seated in, in, in uh, places of decision-making, city gates, councils of one kind or another, neighbors talking to neighbors, whomever, army commanders talking to other army commanders, somebody who has a stake in this, who has placed the bet on the wrong horse and lost. Now they're all quarreling. What are we going to do next? Uh, you know, David's now the king. Yeah, but we don't want to acknowledge him as king. If he's king, he's going to have to take revenge. If he takes revenge, he's going to go find all the people that were opposing him and kill him. We don't want to support a king who's going to kill us. But who else do you have? Absalom's dead. He's the only one left. Well, I don't know, but I don't want to support David. I mean, he'll, you know, it's quarreling over their future because they don't think they have one or they worry 
that they don't have one. So some argue that David's abdication of the throne by fleeing the land, crossing the Jordan, in other words, uh, now means he can't be king. And then you have others arguing in verse 10, well, now that Absalom's dead, who else you got? Right? If it's not David, who's it going to be? So this is a dangerous and pivotal moment in the history of this nation. You know, civil war is dangerous. You don't know where it's going. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And it's led to a crisis of leadership. And it's unclear at this point, if you didn't know how the story ended, whether David's dynasty could survive. David's won the battle, yeah, but what's the nation going to do next? So now you see David's really strong leadership instincts kick in. And he decides the way he's going to have to work himself back into power is to start with the tribe that's most likely to be on his side. So he starts with Judah, verse 11. Then King David sent to Zanok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me, and more also, if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. This, he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, saying, Return, you and all your servants. The king then returned and came as far as the Jordan, and Judah came to Gigal in order to go to meet the king, to bring the king across the Jordan. So, it's kind of ironic, some of Absalom's strongest supporters were actually from the tribe of Judah, even though Judah largely uh, was backing David, but it wasn't a, a, a slam dunk. There, were, there was divisions of allegiance even within Judah. Probably because Absalom was also a Judite. I mean, he's a son of David. So David's got to work his way back to them first. He extends an olive branch, sends the two priests, Zadok, Abiathar, and he tells them, this is what you're going to say to the tribe leaders of Judah. You're going to win them back for me. And it starts with a little bit of ego tweaking here. He says, you don't want to be the last ones to accept me, right? The point being, of all the tribes of Israel that should accept David, it shouldn't be the one that he's from. And he's implying that other tribes are going to accept me. I'm going to be received sooner or later. You don't want to be the last ones in line. Don't you want to be the first? Don't you want to be seen as the leaders? And so David's pulling on their, their blood strings, their, their, their family relationship to pull them in, but he's also dealing with their pride a little bit. Smart strategy. And then, to sweeten the deal, he offers a concession. He offers a concession for Amasa. Now, Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. He's also related to Joab. So you got Joab, who's been working for David now for a long time. You got Amasa, who took sides against him and led the army that was defeated. Now, normally, that guy would be the first one you'd kill after you beat him, right? But David has never particularly liked Joab. Uh, you know, Joab got the job in the first place because he was the first one to enter the city of Jerusalem and he won the bet that David put out there, so he had to honor that. Uh, there's been moments along the way where Joab has done his own thing, not the least of which was killing Absalom. And so there's not a lot of blood, uh, love lost between David and Joab. David just didn't have an easy way to replace the man without dishonoring himself. I mean, you've got to be careful about these things in politics. So he's been looking for the right opportunity. Now he thinks he has it. Because Joab has killed Absalom in direct contradiction to David's orders, he can now make the change and have reason to do so, plus kill two birds with one stone. He can put Amasa into the job. Now Amasa owes him his life. And it makes a bridge for those who had opposed David. So as you're going to see, though, Joab was not an honorable man, but he was a good military man. Amasa is neither. And it's going to be a poor decision on David's part to have made this change. It served the purpose in the moment, but it became a problem later. I think this might be another example of David trying just a little too hard to make friends. He does this from time to time. But anyway, the diplomatic move works. And we're told there that the men of, of Judah come together in one heart to receive David back. They send word, you can come home. Basically, David's needed that. He can't just cross the Jordan on his own. He could be attacked. So he's waiting to get Israel to agree that he can be king again so he can walk back safely. And the Jordan River was a significant barrier. If you go there today, it's not much. It's been depleted by irrigation. But in the day before that, days before that, it was a substantial enough river that fording it was not easy, not with an army. So it was a place of vulnerability. If you tried to cross a river and you weren't protected, you were a sitting duck. So you had to make sure that the people you were crossing over to were going to receive you before you got in the water. And they say, we'll meet you. 
So you end up with uh, David in Mahanaim, Gilgal is marked there, and so you end up with these two groups traveling to meet each other, Judah coming to meet David at this crossing somewhere near Gilgal in the lower Jordan River Valley, and that's a sign of a peace agreement, essentially. We'll be there to support you when you cross, and you'll cross in safety. All right? At this point, I want to remind you of the prophetic picture that we've talked about here in the past that's been developing in this story. And what I mean by that is we've been watching how in the, in the previous lessons, David's departure from Jerusalem when Absalom first came and attacked or came and to, to take power, that departure was a picture of Jesus' own departure from Jerusalem after his first coming and his death and his resurrection when he finally left the city and went away, as he has done now for a time. That whole set of circumstances was mirrored by what happened with David in his uh, leaving. Remember, we know that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, but Israel rejected that, just as Israel rejected David at the time and preferred Absalom. When Israel rejected Jesus, he finally dies, resurrects, and ascends. He went out of the city on his last departure, eastward, up the Mount of Olives, and he ascended. Similarly, when David left the city for that final time as he was escaping Absalom, he went out the east, go up to the Mount of Olives, and he was gone. So the picture is, is maintained. And then if you remember on the way out, he meets that man, Shimei, the Benjamite, who uh, showed great contempt for David's rule, cursing him along the way and so on. Shimei is a picture of how Israel and the common Jew was rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, cursing him on the way to the cross and so on. All right, so like Jesus would do in his day, David withheld judgment in his day against those who opposed him. He did not curse back. He did not condemn those who opposed him. And we knew why when we studied this last time. David said, why should I curse him? If it be God's intent that this man should curse me, who am I to stop it? And it was a nice way of understanding how Jesus went to the cross obediently. If the Father intended to put Jesus on the cross for our sake, Jesus was going to obey God, not oppose him in that. And that's why he said, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down. If I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up also. Well, that's pictured by David's humility in the face of that rebuke and willing to accept Shimei's curses on his way out. So David's departure from Jerusalem, broadly speaking, is a picture of Jesus' departure at his first coming. Now that leads us to the next stage of this comparison because it probably doesn't surprise you to hear David's return to the city is itself another part of the picture. It parallels Jesus' second coming. And the first of these parallels is already evident. Uh, You have the king's return being initiated or prompted by an invitation to return given by the clan of Judah. And we're going to show how that's true in a minute, but I want to point out that, that the parallels here are coming out of things we see prophetically, because obviously it hasn't happened yet, so we're going to Old Testament prophets to do this. And time tonight just does not permit us to get a full and complete examination of all of the events that are given to us in the Old Testament. I'll have to summarize them for you. I'll have to highlight them for you, because we don't have the time. You can get the full story in Revelation, because we do give a lot of it there. But let's just cover it briefly. First, Jesus' second coming as you probably know, I hope, comes at the end of a seven-year period called tribulation. That, that's still to happen. We're waiting for that to happen, obviously. Uh, that seven-year period of tribulation, when it concludes, it concludes with Jesus' second coming to the earth. That time is a time of great judgment, great turmoil. But what many people don't know is it is centered, the tribulation itself, seven years, is centered on the Jewish nation. And those judgments in the course of those seven years ultimately work to that end by bringing the nation of Israel to a point of desperation and ultimately repentance. And as they come through that and come out the end of it, some of them, some of those who survive, the nation is in a state of readiness to receive truth that they were not previously ready to receive. And at the pivotal moment, the, the, the climactic moment of this seven-year period, literally the last couple of days. Zechariah describes how the seven years end in the case of Israel, how Israel gains what God has promised through the course of these events. And it's, I'm going to give you the verses out of Zechariah. I'm going to show you the ones that are, that are relevant tonight because it's not the one in front of you. Everyone's looking at 2 Samuel. So I'll show you the ones that we're going to talk about outside of 2 Samuel. But in Zechariah chapter 12, we read this. Behold, God speaking, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem 
a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, notice it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. This is just an introduction, but you already can tell. Uh, in this chapter, we're looking at the events of tribulation at their very end. And you can already tell there's something bad going on in Jerusalem. The nation of Israel is going to be in a place of siege. You notice at the end there, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. This is a moment in which the nation of Israel is facing certain destruction from an army led by the Antichrist. Again, you don't see that here, but you're, you're hearing this in a summary tonight. Led by the Antichrist, leading all nations on earth, all humanity that's remaining at that point, all of them in unison have decided that Israel is the enemy. And they've all come against Jerusalem, he says, all the nations of the earth. And as a result, the Jews that are huddled in that city in fear see no chance of survival. They see this as their end. That's the pressure cooker set of circumstances that God has been building up to over seven years of tribulation. This is just the, we're, we're, you're joining the Netflix episode of the last episode of the last season. Okay, that's, how, that's where we're dropping you in here. If you want the rest of it, go watch the Revelation study online. And it's in this moment that the Lord finally brings to conclusion all of what he's been doing in these seven years for Israel's sake. He prepares their hearts to receive Christ as their king. In verse nine of that same chapter. And in that day, speaking of this same moment, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they, meaning the Jews, will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is the dramatic moment in which what Paul says in Romans comes true, all Israel is saved. Across the board, all of Israel will receive the spirit in a moment that God chooses at the very last hours of tribulation. And as he sends his spirit upon all remaining Jews who are alive on earth at the end of tribulation, that arrival of the spirit will cause those Jews to turn to Jesus in faith. But it's interesting, they, they see him only in hindsight. What comes to their understanding in that moment is that the Jesus of Nazareth that was put to death some 2,000 years earlier on a cross was their Messiah. Or, in effect, they just realized, we killed our Messiah. And that's why they're mourning. It's not apparent to them yet that he's going to be there to save them. They're on the other end of that story right now. They're thinking, it's too late. We've killed him. We now realize we did the wrong thing so long ago. How can we possibly expect him to save us now? This is the moan of repentance that ultimately brings them to faith and salvation. But what should be cause for celebration has become a cause of mourning because they see it in this rear view mirror sense. They see that in hindsight. So notice their repentance is accompanied by fear and even a hesitation to embrace Jesus as Messiah because they don't see that there's anything to embrace. Do you see the pattern being mirrored by what we're studying in David's case now? As David prepares to return to Jerusalem, what has just transpired? A great battle has just been fought, and as the result of that great battle being fought, David is now self-evidently the king. What do we see up here? In the great battle that will end tribulation, who will win? God says, I will destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. So in the same context, a battle in which the good guys are gonna win, and the ones that are being saved are the ones that were under attack. Well, here again, the ones who were being saved in this case, in both cases, are the Jewish people. But it's interesting, in the case of David, the nation of Israel is unwilling to bring their king back because they're worried that that king might exact his revenge on them for having been rebellious against him. And in a similar way, the Jews of the last days, when they find out that the man they killed is their Messiah, are mourning because they see no prospect of either him being available, or even if they knew he could come back, they probably assume if he did come back, he'd be pretty upset at them, right? So the, the pattern begins with a battle leading to the opportunity for the true king to rise up, but his own people are too worried to embrace him, too scared to understand that he has a heart to, to, to forgive them. And so it starts in that context. What happens next? Well, in the story of David, he reaches out. He reaches out 
to his people with kindness and forgiveness. And he starts with the tribe of Judah. That is, those who lived in and around Jerusalem. Asking them to be the first to embrace him as king. And that is exactly what happens for Jesus as well. His return to Israel after the tribulation begins with the spirit of supplication, as we just read, going to Judah. Israel and to Judah specifically, those who are in the city of Jerusalem. And that prompts the initial beginning response of Israel toward their their Messiah. Now what are the other tribes doing though? Well, they are going to follow Judah's lead in receiving David and we are going to ask them, well, what happens with Jesus? I mean, is he received by everyone in Jewish society or just the Judahites? Well, you would already know the answer, right? Because if the picture is going to hold, one is going to have to follow from the other. Well, here's what Zechariah says happens. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. That's the moment in which Judah has come to faith. Like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn. Now notice he's moved from Judah to the land. The land will mourn. Every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Levi, different tribe, by itself. And the wives by themselves. And notice the family of the Shimeites by itself and the wives by themselves. All the families that remain. Every family by itself and their wives by themselves. You see the progression there? If I gave you those names, you notice there's David, Nathan, Levi. What do they represent? What David was a king. Nathan was a prophet. Levi is a priest. King, prophet, priest, right? The three major divisions of noble class in Israel. Then, it says here, they all embrace Jesus as Messiah. So you see from Judah this almost bullseye-like outward movement of faith through these divisions or these branches, if you will, of society within Israel, sort of representing how it begins to move outward into the families of Israel, not just staying with Judah. And then that fourth name, Shimei. Remember that name? Now, of all the names that we could have included in this list, speaking prophetically about the last days, why would Shimei show up of all names of Israel? I mean, how how many other people in the Bible could you think of before this one, right? Why is Shimei there? Because of the direct connection to the picture that we're now looking at in 2 Samuel. Shimei is the man who met David on the way out, the Benjamite who cursed him and has that prominent moment in chapter 16 as David's leaving. And Shimei represents, therefore, Jesus' enemies in this picture. Just like the nation of Israel was cursing at Jesus and spitting on Jesus and calling for his death instead of Barabbas. Well, that's equivalent to a Shimei out in the woods throwing rocks at David, at the king. And now, at the end, when David is ready to return, or let's go to Jesus in this case, when Jesus comes back, It will be the Shimeites, Benjamites specifically, but more generally, the common people, the common Jew of the time who is not a noble class, but has otherwise opposed Jesus. You know, the Jew that every time you mention the name of Jesus or Yeshua, they spit on the ground. This is commonplace among among observant Jews, right? Or the general opposition that Jewish people have to anything Christian, seeing us as their enemy as as opposed to something that they should want, right? That person, whoever they are in the world, That's the Shimeite in this picture. Someone who was rejecting Jesus, cursing him, and then receiving him on his second coming because of God's grace poured out. Now, we have not seen Shimei in the picture from David's side make that turn yet, right? So we've been making this back and forth comparison. One, one over here, one over here, one over here, one over here. All right, so we have on this side now the Shimeites recur- returning to, to uh, follow Jesus at the end of the last days of tribulation. Do we see the actual Shimei come back to David? Well, of course we do, otherwise we wouldn't be studying this, right? So in the next part of the story, 2 Samuel nineteen sixteen. Then Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite who was from Baharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand, now I want you to, this is a funny scene, I hope I can carry it off for you, listen to this. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons, and his 20 servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. And then they kept crossing the ford to bring the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, let not my Lord consider me guilty 
nor remember what your servant did wrong on that day when my Lord the king came out from Jerusalem so that the king would take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today the first of all the house of Joseph to go down and meet my Lord the king. Now he's trying hard, isn't he? he de- David's coming to the Jordan. Remember, he's gonna have to cross that. Judah was gonna meet him, help you know, honor that. And uh, as this is happening, word gets out, of course, people know what's going to happen, and Shimei finds out, and he knows, you know, the last time I saw David didn't go very well, so I might want to do something to help myself here, so he takes everyone he's got, he's got all his family, everyone's going, put on your Sunday best, we're all going down to see the king, and he shows up fast, he shows up, in fact, before anyone else in Judah can even get there, and he starts crossing the river to the other side where David would have been. And as David's men start showing up and David starts showing, he just says, I'll take that from you. Hey, guys, grab this from them. We'll help you. Don't, you guys don't get wet. We got it. And they start carrying all their stuff across the river for them to get them across and show honor to them. I mean, it's funny because you can kind of see the guy working the system here to get any favor he can out of David. And I'd love to imagine David's perspective as he just sort of sits there and goes, mm-hmm, yeah, you want to get that one over there too? You know, you're making the most of it. And... He's also, you notice, he's accompanied by the elders of Benjamin, so the tribe is also there. Um, a total of a 1,000 men show up. And then this chief servant, Ziba, is there again. We're gonna come back to him in a minute. Uh, and when David's finally ready to cross himself, before he crosses, and that's an interesting moment because it suggests that before David takes the seat of power again, it's like the moment he crosses the river, he's on duty again. You know, before he gets to that point, uh, you have Shimei on the other side talking to him. And he's fearing for his life, obviously trying to appease the king, but he, look what he does. He acknowledges his sin, and he, he says, I was wrong to oppose you, and he says, I'm here first to embrace you. I'm the first one to come back. This is parallel from Zechariah's description of what happens when Jesus comes at his second coming. Of those families that mourn for Jesus in Jerusalem, first among the commoners are the Shimeites. That's why they're listed there. So, it's Shimei and his Shimeite family. I, I, you know, the, the tracing of one man to that eventual group is not so much the point being made. It's more just in the connection of the story so that you understand its, imp- its importance. This is Shimei reflecting the change in heart of all, Israel, of all Israel, of all Jews at that time in the last days as pictured by his predecessor doing it for David. And so, just as Shimei persecuted David and then eventually turns, similarly, it will be that way for Israel in the last days. And as I said, that's the meaning of what Paul said in Romans eleven twenty six when he talked about all Israel will be saved, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. All Israel in that context means all who are alive when that coming happens, which is at the second coming. Let's just do a quick recap so you have this. So David returns at the end of a great battle, to conquer a counterfeit king, Absalom. Jesus returns at the end of a great battle, having conquered a counterfeit king, the Antichrist. David returns to Jerusalem and Judah. Jesus returns first to Jerusalem and Judah. Israel remembers that they rejected David, and as a result, they mourn the prospect of him being their king, at least at first. Similarly, of course, with the nation uh, at the time of the tribulation. And finally, because David extends grace to all elements of the Jewish nation, they unite under his leadership, and Jesus brings grace to Israel as a part of his return. So we see the before, we see the after. If you have the lesson from chapter 16, you can compare it with this, and you can see the whole picture. All right, let's move on and finish this up. Similar to the last time uh, that David met Shimei, there are going to be those who object to the grace that David extends. Remember, he, he showed grace the first time on the way out. He's going to show it again on the way back, and he's got the same person telling him he shouldn't be doing it. Verse 21. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, should not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David then said, what am I to do with you, O sons of Zariah, that you should be this day an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? The king said to Shimei, you shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. So remember Abishai, he's one of those brothers with Joab uh, and the one... uh, uh, was it, what was his name? Asahel, I can't remember what his name was. The one that died in the beginning. Uh, but Joab's the commander, that's the brother of Abishai. Abishai's been hanging around as sort of a consultant. I don't know what his job is, but he's been hanging around with David for a while, member of the guard. But he's, he's kind of best known in the scriptures for being the guy that always gives David the wrong advice. 
And here he does it again. I mean, he, he wants, well, in a way it's wrong. I, to be fair, he's actually asking that the law be, be applied because for someone to do what Shimei did, the penalty would be death according to the law. But the king can issue a pardon. And so effectively David pardoned him on the way out and he's pardoning him on the way, out, uh, way back. And you know, Abishai doesn't like that. He thinks this guy should have died. And David's response is, first of all, I know I'm king. It's not like this guy is a threat to me at all. Secondly, uh, on this day of all days when I'm coming back and it's a celebration of, of victory, should this be the day I start carrying out revenge? David was smart enough to know that that would completely change the tone of his leadership if people saw him as a vengeful king as opposed to who he truly was. And his instincts are good here. In fact, they're so good that when the kingdom later divides after Solomon's death, the nation, you know, the nation splits under two different leaders. Uh, where does Benjamin go? You know, Benjamin's the issue here. The tribe of Benjamin was Saul's original family tribe, right? So that's been the rub. The rub's been between Judah and Benjamin. Who's going to have the king? And Shimei, he's a Benjamite. So he's against David because David came and took the throne away from his family. But David's effect here of building bridges is so strong that when the split comes again under, uh, after Solomon, Benjamin sides with Judah. So Benjamin and Judah end up being together in their kingdom. So that's a reflection of how strong this, this bond is that, that David forges. So David's return is a picture of Christ's return at his second coming. And this is a little element of that too. David's willingness to show mercy to those who opposed him is comparable to what Jesus does. Uh, it does get David into trouble sometimes with his own family, uh, but that's a different story in my mind. Uh, what you do in leading people can be different than what you do in leading your own family. Uh, there was another associate of David, though, that he needs to set things right with as we wrap the chapter up. That's Mephibosheth and Ziba. Verse 24, Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. It was when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O oh my lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For the servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I might ride on it and go with the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God and therefore do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead, dead men before my lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? All right, so here's the backstory. You remember in chapter 16, David's leaving, and he confronts, uh, meets several people along the way. One of the people he meets along the way is that old servant, Ziba, that he had used, used to be David's servant. David sent him off to serve Mephibosheth. So Ziba lost that cherry position in the court of the king. He had to go serve some lame Benjamite as his new job, and that's what David made him do. So he's not really liking that, a little resentful about that demotion. So when he hears that David's leaving the city, remember Ziba ran out, with those donkeys with provisions for David. And when David noticed that Ziba came to greet him on his way out, he said, where's your master, Mephibosheth? And Ziba told him at that time, oh, my master, he's in Jerusalem, which is a way of saying he's waiting for the new king and he's gonna be on his side. It was a lie. What Ziba was hoping to do was put David and Mephibosheth on the outs and then maybe Ziba would get the inheritance, the property that Mephibosheth used to have when David reassigned it. And now on his return, back in Jerusalem, after he's come, come back to the city, Mephibosheth shows up. And so David's first question is, where you been? Why didn't you come to my side? Why were you on the other side? And remember, before even that happened, when he crossed the Jordan, who met David when he crossed the Jordan? Shimei and Ziba was with him. So David's seen Ziba when he left. He's seen Ziba when he came back. No Mephibosheth. Now finally Mephibosheth's showing up. David's not, you know, happy. Um, and Mephibosheth smartly made the decision while David was gone to engage in a fairly common practice of mourning, which is to let yourself go, basically. Uh, kind of, you know, stop taking care of yourself. So he didn't cut his hair, didn't cut his nails, didn't even wash his clothes. Now, I suppose, given the events, that this thing took a matter of weeks, maybe even a few months to play out. So he's ripe, and... The, the, the benefit of that, though, is as he comes back now to in front of David, David's like, what happened to you? But it's a sign that this guy has sincerely been on David's side from the beginning. If you hadn't been on David's side from the beginning, but had been on Absalom's side, and then all of a sudden, at the very end, David wins, and now you try to switch sides, you wouldn't have time to have your hair grow and your nails grow and all the rest. So 
It's proof that he's been with David from the beginning that he would have engaged in this behavior. So it's a compelling argument. And then the story goes that it was Ziba who was putting one over on you. Ziba you know, lied to me and lied to you. Otherwise, I'd have been on your, you know, I'd have been there if I could have. I'm lame. I couldn't get there. So um, what would you expect David to do at this point? I mean, I think the natural thing to do would be to tell Ziba hit the road, or worse, and reward Mephibosheth. Verse 29 doesn't quite go that way. So the king said to him, why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. So David, in that first part of verse 29, he's just dismissing the whole thing as not my problem. And he applies a kind of Solomonic logic here. He just says, I'm gonna divide the state in half, and you get in a very Solomonic response. Oh, let him have the whole thing, right? We don't hear anything more about it at this point. So the assumption I have to make here is David probably decided that dividing the land was better than trying to figure out who was telling the truth, even if it might have been obvious it was Mephibosheth. And by dividing the land, he basically stops Ziba from working for Mephibosheth and solves the problem. It's like two kids in the back seat, each of you go to your own side. And it was a way of putting the problem out of his mind. And, you know, if you want to give David the benefit of the doubt, at this point, this is not high on the priority list of a king who's coming back to power. So, you know, this is the easy way out of a problem he doesn't want to mess with anymore. Be that as it may, for the, um, I love Mephibosheth's response, though. And I want to just, just mention something very quickly in passing before we read the last section. You know, to be friend of the king is worth any earthly sacrifice. As long as Mephibosheth had David's approval, he didn't need the land. He'd have whatever he wanted. There's nothing he would never be in need of. And on the other hand, if David was not on his side, no amount of land was going to save him from a, from a king who was not his friend, right? So that's a very biblical principle in its own right. It's worth remembering. What we possess materially cannot replace a close relationship with the king. So you're, you're, you, know, you stand uh, on who you know. It's the old thing. It's not about what you know. It's who you know. It's, you're going to stand on the basis of what Christ thinks about you in the kingdom. You're not going to stand on the basis of what you achieve materially. So if material gain stands in the way of the pleasure of the king, get it out of the way. Because it can't save you from an angry king, and it's, it's not a replacement for what you're striving for in the kingdom. All right, finally, this last scene is kind of humorous too. It's a love fest. You're going to see this. This is like the culmination of this love fest around David. And it's a man from the Transjordan who shows his support. And it's, it's quick, but it does sort of point out what's going on. Verse 31. Now, Barzillai the Gideite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on to Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old. And it sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a great, great man. The king said to Barzillai, you crossed over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up to the, with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or, I can hear, or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross with my lord the king and do what is good in your sight. The king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him what is good in your sight. Whatever you require of me, I will do for you. All the people crossed over the Jordan and the king crossed too. The king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his palace. All right, very quickly. We first heard of this guy, Barzillai. It's tempting to pronounce it as Barzilla, but that's not what it is. Um, but if it helps you remember him. Uh, anyway, chapter 17, when David first got to Manahim after he fled, this man came with other people from Amnon and wherever um, to give supplies and support to the king. So that's where he got to know this guy. And as it just said, he sustained him there. Now David's coming back. This man's accompanied him to the Jordan. And David's obviously enamored with this guy and says, just come all the way with me and I'll take care of you. And you know, his response is, I'm too old to do any good to you anyway. Let me just go home. It's been enough for me to come this far. And David says, well, I got, uh, uh, that's fine. I, I'll take your son, um, 
it's actually uh, Josephus that says that uh, Hicham is how you say it. Hicham is his son. But either way, it's a swap, one counselor for another, and David's happy with that and says, I'll support you back at home for the rest of your life. Keep that in your back pocket. Move on. As the king crosses, enters back into the land, the leaders of the other ten tribes finally catch up with David and the Judites. And they pledge their support. Verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chicham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. Behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us. Why then are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with a contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. That's a way of saying, and they went on to argue. So so this is funny when you think about what's really going on here. You have the tribal leaders of David from those other ten tribes. Judah was the first to go and get them and say, "We're, we're on your side, right? The whole idea was they would lead their brothers in this process. And sure enough, the other ten see, well, he's coming back. He's already got Judah on his side. We don't have anybody else. Guys, we better fall in line. And so they rush out with this huge contingent. It says they're half of the men of Israel. I mean, there's this huge movement of people to try to show their support of David. And they go out to greet David as he's coming up from the Jordan. And they're all late to this party. And because they see David coming up, they see Judah coming up. And it's, you know, it's like that, that, that problem of, of being late to something you were supposed to be on time. Now you've got to make up for it. Now you've got to sort of make amends. So they quickly begin to engage in this who loves David more argument between themselves and the Judites. Verse 41, they tell David, the Judites have stolen you away from us. In other words, you've prevented us from having the opportunity to help you get across the Jordan. Trying to save face here, right? And it it, kind of sounds like someone who forgets your birthday and complains they weren't invited to the party. It's like... How does that work? So Judah responds, well, of course we were going to be there first. He's a member of our tribe. He's our king. In other words, they're claiming ownership of David by virtue of this connection. And the the other tribes defend in response to that, well, wait a minute, we're 10, you're only one. Who's got more ownership of David than us? We have 10 parts to one. And it just kind of goes on from there. It ends with that Judah returns an even harsher response. So it's a cute way of saying, well, they just kept going at it for a while. But what's the whole, you know, if you imagine this war of words escalating, what each side is trying to do is show a greater allegiance to David than the other as a way of honoring David. Now, that ending, being comical, look at the reversal, and that's why it's written this way in the story. I think this is why the, uh, the author ends it this way. If you've read the whole thing front to back, you have to remember in the beginning, how did David leave? Remember that scene, chapter 15, 16? He's weeping. He's alone. His only friends are mercenary Gentiles. David's literally got to pay for friends as he's leaving the city. He's got no one on his side. His main uh, court counselor has gone to be Absalom's counselor. You you could not see a guy less loved as he's leaving power than this guy was. And, I mean, like Jesus said, his crucifixion, really, he had everyone abandoned him. He had no one. And God allowed David to experience that downfall as a consequence for his missteps in his personal life, his family life. And David willingly accepted the rebuke of God. He even acknowledged it as such. And because he was willing to accept it, and this is the key turning point, because David's heart was willing to see it for what it was and embrace it in all its value, God could work in his heart, accomplish the lesson as intended, and then when it was over, restore him. And as David returns to Israel, what does he find now? He's in literally the opposite situation, to a comical degree. The whole nation now is arguing with each other over who loves him more. Now, this is one of those moments I love because it's such a great demonstration of the principle that we know, right? That God is able to do more, far more abundantly than we can even imagine, as I can summarize it, right? The idea that we know God can do a lot, but we're constantly underestimating him. And it's the nature of the problem. God can do so much more than we can imagine. And here's an example of it. Oh, I know God can restore me. But isn't that a part of you that says, yeah, but it'll never be quite the same. I know I, I had this loss, this, this trial, this tragedy, this thing in my life, and I know God can restore, and I know I believe it, I believe it, 
But in the back of your mind, you're also saying, yeah, but it'll never be quite the same. Well, it won't be exactly the same, but it'll be better. By what I mean by that, it's not necessarily in this life where you get more money than you lost or have more family than you lost or have more health than you lost. That's not the point. What I'm saying is, in the things that truly matter and, and are valuable, things that are eternal, things that have meaning beyond the day uh, that we live in now, those things will come to replace what you lost and the experience of losing and coming back to something better is itself a gain in what it produces in spiritual maturity. So in this example, you see David being restored to king where he was before, yes, but with more allegiance than he ever knew, with more support and unity in the nation than he ever had had before. And you have Judah and Benjamin and every other tribe now strongly behind him. And his earlier detractors, even those who had cursed him, they're now begging for forgiveness. You even have the foreigners who couldn't probably have cared too much about David in the past. Now, they're pledging allegiance to him from distant lands. Tribes are arguing about who loves him more. I mean, this is such a classic case of God doing beyond what you can see. And it's also a connection to the second coming. When Jesus returns... He embraces an Israel that is ready for him and comes to him with great allegiance. And what they receive in the kingdom is far greater than anything they ever received in the life they knew before that in terms of what Israel has had. The promises God fulfills to Israel in the kingdom are promises that bring such great joy and provision and security and all the things they've wanted for their whole existence that makes anything they've been able to achieve in the meantime pale in comparison. And that's the, the, the ultimate meaning of this picture. What God can do once, he can do a second time better. And in fact, what we learn from the Bible is Jesus rules not just over the Jewish people who embrace him, but over the, the entire earth. And we'll end on this. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountain and it will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between many people and render decisions for mighty distant nations and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Sounds like a place you'd want to live, right? That's the world that Christ leads. So just as David comes back to lead a greater, more unified, peaceful Israel, so does, Israel, does uh, the Lord come back to lead a better world in the kingdom. And on a personal level, that is for us individually. David's experience in this is that a disciplined process, painful as it was to endure, led to a repentant heart which ultimately produced this peaceful fruit of righteousness manifested in God's provision of even greater things for David. That is, David now saw the pleasure of God in ways that he had desired. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that's true for every Christian. Uh, every Christian has this promise. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love that phrase. He says, discipline seems not to be joyful. Try telling that to your child as you're spanking them. I know this seems it's not to be joyful, but trust me. Here's what he means. Your emotional response is a lie of sorts. Your emotional response to discipline is a lie of sorts. We feel sad about the discipline. We feel sad, so we conclude things are bad. But the writer says, no, they just seem to be sad. If you could see the benefits you're reaping as you endure that difficult moment, you would feel differently about it. You'd still feel sadness over the circumstances, but you would not feel bad about the whole circumstance because you know what it's doing for you in the long run. You might, you'd be at peace with it, in other words. You'd have a sense of hope in it. You'd have a sense of anticipation of where it's taking you. That's what discipline does for children, right? I know this hurts you right now, but in the long run, you'll be happier that you don't do that again. You know, I'll spank you for doing that. The next time you'll be arrested for doing that, you'll be happier you got the spanking than the arrest. I mean, we know that. Kids aren't picking up on that until they're older. But God knows things like that in your life that you're still thinking like a child about. That's where discipline comes in, knowing that sometimes if you can take it in the right spirit and be humble in the face of it, you're going to get the value out of it. And that's the intent. All right, let's end there in prayer. We'll go to Q&A for those who want to hang around. Father, I thank you, Lord, for discipline. I thank you that it is the loving response that you give us when we need it. And I thank you, Father, that it can lead to such 
wonderful change in our lives, even if we aren't enjoying the process at times. But Father, I ask that you would help us understand it as David did. And in this way, perhaps more than anything else we learn from this man, I pray, Father, we would learn how to be quick in repentance, how to be quick in a response that honors our witness, and how to be humble in the face of correction from any direction, and then to use it for its greatest good, Father, to help us become the man or woman of God that you've asked us to be. Thank you, Father, for the lesson, and keep us safe in these difficult days as we continue in our study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.